When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Impact of Influence, the tragic story of a powerful South Carolina family and the mysterious deaths that they are linked to. Hi, thanks for being here. I am Matt Harris. Hello, Seton Tucker. Hello. We are going to be talking to John Snyder in a moment, our legal analyst. And a little later in the program, we're going to talk to a professor who will shed light on some of the unethical things that he believes Alec Murdoch's grandfather, Randolph II, known as Buster, did as his time as a solicitor slash prosecutor. So there's been a story in the community that says that Alex's great-grandfather, Randolph Sr., the man who started the whole law firm and the whole dynasty, was dying of cancer and allegedly decided to park his car on railroad tracks and wait for a train to take his life, thus guaranteeing the Murdoch family money. And then you'll hear Professor Bloom later talk about Alex's grandfather, Randolph Buster II, who played fast and loose with ethics in the courtroom, putting multiple people on death row. Many of those sentences were overturned due to his courtroom annex. It appeared Alex's granddaddy was a win-at-all-cost prosecutor who blurred the lines, often stepped way over the line to get a conviction. So if you think about this, both Murdoch patriarchs are held in high esteem in the family and in the area, and the stories of those two men are legendary, playing fast and loose with the rules was okay to the generations of Murdoch men, perhaps, who grew up hearing those stories, and the stories were not told as, oh, I can't believe they did that. They were celebrated. So is it any wonder, perhaps, that Alec Murdoch may have thought bending, breaking, blurring the lines and the rules is just what Murdoch men did? The two men his family idolized did not suffer for their murky ethics, and so maybe in the beginning, Alec Murdoch thought, yeah, I'll blur the lines a little bit, and I can get away with it. Just some thoughts from me on that. And we are joined again by John Snyder, our legal analyst, former district attorney, former defense attorney, and someone named, I think, Dabo reached out to us, John, and said, that guy needs to be a law professor. That's what he needs to be. So that, that was one vote for you becoming a professor. You are the professor of this podcast. Well, I appreciate that, and that that would be kind of fun, I think. <laughs> Wait, we did have a professor on last time, so we, yeah. we have multiple professors. We have multiple. We have a professor coming up later on the show. But let's go with first questions first. You may have seen a headline, and you haven't dug into it, folks, that it's about uh, charges being dropped against Alec Murdoch. What have you seen with that, John? Well, 
the state and having kind of multiple counties and multiple agencies looking into the charges charged Murdoch with four counts of something that that when they went back and looked at the evidence, there's only evidence of two counts of, I think, obtaining property by false pretenses. So in an effort to make sure they're precise in how they proceed forward in these cases, they've dropped two of the four charges to make sure that everything lines up with what the factual evidence is showing right now. So if people see that headline, don't panic. It doesn't mean a lot of charges are about to be dropped. It's, it's no, still good. You know, a lot of what I've seen law enforcement doing the last six months it's just quietly and efficiently building their case. You know, I don't think he's going to get out of a lot at this stage. Well, I think some of the public outcry was because the first two charges, he was denied bond pending a psychiatric evaluation, and then he was denied bond again. And the second set of charges was under a different judge, Lee, and they allowed bond, which was very high, and he's not bonded out as of the time of this podcast, but I think that may have been some of the public outcry. But it's really nothing to, to worry about. If you're, think, if, you, if you're wanting him locked up, this does not change the story. Th- that's right. This is, this is in no way an indication or a trend. It's the state cleaning up and tidying up what they, they believe to be a rock-solid case moving forward. So we also know that PMPED has now changed their name to the Parker Law Firm. Uh, They actually, there was an article that came out yesterday in the Augusta Chronicle that said, contrary to media reports over the holidays stating that PMPED was splitting up with Randolph Murdoch IV, branching out to form his own solo practice, that this was not happening. They were remaining as a whole, there was only one partner who was leaving, which was William Barnes, and that apparently was already in the works. So basically, Rand- Randy Murdoch is will still be working there. He'll still be part of the law firm. They just changed the name, right? That's right. And I, and I think the, the purpose there is, is twofold. One is the guys that had nothing to do with this are trying to maintain their ability to practice law and provide for their families. And so... By changing the name, it removes kind of any reference to the family, removes any negative uh, implication of involvement with the family, and and from a PR standpoint, makes perfect sense. Yeah. Uh, again, she's pretty logical. It's logical. Well, some of the uh, lawyers actually filed separate limited liability partnerships. So, what's what would be the purpose of that? So that's a, that's actually standard in a in a multi partner law firm. Instead of having your partnership be as an individualized interest, it can be set up through a limited liability company. Again, what it is, it's just an insulating factor. So it's it's basically like Matt Co, Seton Co, and John Co all are together for Big Co. And so we're we're all gotcha. under one company umbrella, but we have our own separate entities that we run our expenses through. We run our cost, you know, our our um, income through it's a tax structuring and business structuring thing that's that's common in law firms. The footnote is the history of this family that had had such a presence for so many years is being erased in in months. Uh, right, you've got you know almost a hundred years of of dominance in the legal profession there, and you know because of. Alex, one, one son's misdeeds, their whole legacy is being erased. As of now, 
only one uh, person is involved. It may change. You never know. Okay, so we also had a report that just came out that said multiple sources close to an ongoing investigation have told Fitz News that physical forensic evidence directly ties Alec Murdoch to the double homicide. I know you're a former DA, so what are your thoughts on that? Because of the, the seriousness of the crime, because of the role that Alex Murdoch had at the time uh, as being, you know, being a, one of the prosecutors in, in that county, uh, I think law enforcement's been very, they've been very deliberative in this investigation. And so every piece of evidence was collected. That takes time to be analyzed. And so his fingerprints would have been everywhere. So then you have to go to the next step to see what related to the gunshot wounds uh, or the weapons found at the scene. Those will be analyzed. And, you know, there may even be a confession coming. They are announcing in any way that he was connected. They've got evidence to back that up. Okay, but they're not announcing it, right? This is a leak. This is not an official word, so this may not be accurate. Well, this is just a leak. Okay, if it's, if it's a leak, but if if somebody's if somebody along the chain is saying there's direct forensic evidence connecting, and legal departments of newspapers felt comfortable running that, it's probably a fairly reliable source. We'll probably hear a lot about that in the next you know week, week and a half. So I want to talk about a Wall Street Journal article that came out in September that talked about some of the evidence that was found at the scene. They say that there was ammunition known as a 300 blackout that was found near the scene. And they also say that the family owned an AR-15 style rifle and that the blackout 300 ammunition can be used with this type of rifle. um, But that was not recovered at the scene. The ammunition or the rifle? The rifle. The rifle was not okay. And, you know, we know that they were searching the swamps after. Yeah. Uh, the woods and area. The woods after the deaths of Maggie and Paul. So just kind of found that interesting that maybe, maybe it's the rifle. And this is kind of a little gun education 101. The the projectile is the thing that kills someone. The projectile is part of a bullet. When the projectile leaves, a casing comes out. When you're watching an you know, action movie and you see things shooting out of the gun on the side, that's what held the gunpowder and the projectile together. And so... Those casings were found at the house, but the gun that shot them has not been found. That particular style of ammunition can be used in in different types of weapons. So it could be in a it could be in a pistol. It could also be in a in a rifle. And the fact of the matter is, you're at a hunting lodge, and the availability right. of guns and bullets and various devices along those lines is not anything shocking or surprising, and doesn't really mean anything unless there clearly is a rifle missing because they're going to be there we talk to people down there they walk around in these areas with uh, you know an ak or ar on the back of their golf cart or whatever if they're in a wood like a place where you might see boar and pig and and animals like that it's not unusual to have one in the back of your truck either guns in a place where people use guns is you know be like we found a we found an empty shell casing in a police department it's like well yes right (laughs) there's there's a thousand reasons that could. the reason i say that is because a lot of people i had talked to who aren't from any of these areas and i'm not but i've talked to enough people we're like, 
but who would have an AR or an AK? But that is very common in that area. That, so I, that's right. And it's, it's not because everybody's like strapped going to the grocery store. Mm. There's a lot of people that hunt wild, wild hogs down there. And some people use a pistol to hunt with them and some use a, a rifle. And the rifle can be, you know, what, what you think of as like your granddaddy's 22, or it can, it could be one of the ARs that, that again, is just, it's just a rifle that's, that's got, you know, different detailing on the outside, but it, but it functions just the same as the old, the old bolt action rifle that, that your grandfather might've had. A, a good example I want to give about this is I was doing this national TV interview and the interviewer, and we'll call that person out was like, well, why, why would Paul, for instance, or Maggie walk from their house to the kennels with a gun? The person was implying, you know, that it wouldn't make sense for that person to have a gun. They're just walking. And I'm like, well, I don't know. I think that that's possible around there. And the guy who was giving me a ride to and from like the little set, he is from there. And he's like, we have them constantly on our little vehicles that yeah. we take from one place to another. He said, it's not unusual if you are walking a, a distance out, even just to a dog kennel, that there might be one sitting there leaning against a tree or something. And I'm not saying this thing is right, but that is just a true fact. Yeah. While it doesn't seem normal to people that don't live in that area or don't hunt, when I go hunting, you keep your gun with you. And even if you're not hunting, you're just, you know, you are walking in land where there's hunting, you know, like in this case. I like everyone else is very curious to see what this evidence linking elk is. I, I can't wait to find out. Um, and also if he will, in fact, be arrested shortly. You would think that if he they blew his alibi apart, that would be enough to have some serious questioning and thing and or, but we don't know. So do you find it strange, John, that it's been seven months since this happened? Like if they did have evidence linking Alec, wouldn't it have happened sooner? No, you want your people who are charged with murder to not be randomly charged with murder. There are a million podcasts out there about people cases where the people claim they were wrongly accused. And so we want prosecutors and police departments to take their time to gather evidence to make sure that when they decide to charge somebody with a serious crime, that they have the evidence to support it. And so while you know we live in this instant age and we want instant justice, it is way better to let process work to methodically go through and say, okay, we're at a, a double homicide at a hunting lodge where there's, you know, <laughs> there, there might be thousands of empty shell casings within, you know, 800 yards of the house where the, the bodies were found. Right. So yeah. you, you want them to go very slow and not just charge somebody for murder on almost no evidence. Because that ruins people's lives if they didn't do anything wrong. And so I think it's actually a, a show of restraint. That's one. The second issue is we have people that are part of the system that were involved. And so they, you know, there may have been some obstruction. There may have been some evidence, you know, hiding. You know, so there's some other things that may have made it harder for investigators to bring about a charge quickly. I prefer 
states and investigating agencies to take their time to do it right. I can tell you as a former prosecutor, there's nothing worse than having to dismiss a murder case because the victims don't feel any less grief. If there's some issue with the evidence, you're letting that family down. There was a question off of the Murdoch podcast Facebook page, which is our page we hope you'll go to. And Nancy asked about attorney's fees. And if they settle and the people who should have been receiving their million dollars say don't receive their million dollars, uh, but let's say Alec or some other person in the firm received a percentage, will they keep their percentage? Even if they, so in other words, they get 700, the person's supposed to get 700,000, they got 300,000, I'm making up numbers. Do they get to keep the 300,000, even though they never gave them the 700,000? And is there an interest built in on the money if it should have gotten there a year ago? So the, the very first thing that, that's happened is there's been an audit of the law firm's finances. So if they see that a, a million dollar check came in for Mrs. Smith, and then they see that only a hundred was paid out to her. 30,000 was kept by the law firm. She's going to get all that million dollars back plus probably plus interest, as you said, and the firm's not going to benefit in any way from, from the wrongdoing of one of its partners. All right. Now, that being said, most of these cases were contingency fee cases. So the aggrieved party that didn't get their settlement probably didn't pay any you know actual fees out upfront cost upfront cost so so making them whole looks like them getting their whole you know settlement award not you know st- not not money on top of money gotcha but they still have claims against the law firm if it appears they either had knowledge or they were negligent in how they were operating their finances. So on top of the money that they may receive that they were supposed to receive, they may have a malpractice claim as well. They'll, they'll have a separate, yeah. So they'll have actually their original claim that, that should have been settled properly. And then they'll have a new new and separate claim against the attorney and his law firm for malfeasance and negligence. So so actually these people that are that were wronged are probably getting a whole lot more money than they would have initially gotten under under a regular settlement with an ethical lawyer involved in their case. And uh, something we saw, but it was in all the publications, headline type stuff that Maggie Murdoch in 2005 wrote a will that turned everything over to Alec and the executor of the will was supposed to be Maggie's sister, but it was crossed out and Randolph's name which is Alec's father, was written in. We think it's a big nothing burger because, of course, you're going to write a will and give it to your spouse. Secondly, Maggie's sister is not disputing that the Murdochs can handle being the executors. So we agreed, nothing burger there, everybody? You know, one, everybody in their will who's who's married, the, the most common first distribution of assets is to your spouse that survives you than than your kids and so that that's totally normal naming your sister uh might be normal but she she might you know it could have been that 
that she, you know the sisters were talking and she's like i i don't have any interest in doing that and she so she actually in her affidavit says that she was never even aware that she was named in the first place but there could be something like that though where that they she's like why am i putting her to do this she's busy she's got crap going on and her father-in-law is an attorney so it would make sense she would have someone with legal knowledge to be the person there's nothing nefarious on its face with with any of this and even if it was part of alex's further strategy of trying to get getting control money you know that would have backfired anyway because the father died three days later so whoever the secondary person named in the will would would have stepped in anyway john thanks man i appreciate it thanks guys hey john john snyder everybody uh, Looking forward to what we're going to find out here, hopefully, evidence-wise, in the next couple weeks. Yeah, me too. Hopefully. Happy New Year's. Thank you. All right. Talk to you later. Take a little break and uh, get you ready for some traveling you've got coming up, some international trip where you want to be able to at least get around, right? So you want to learn the language of the country that you're going to. You want to experience it with a little bit of knowledge going in. And you can get a lot of bit of knowledge when you use Rosetta Stone. It's the most trusted language learning program. It's available on desktop. It can also be used as an app on your phone or tablet. And Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion. It's instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals. You read stories. You participate in dialogues. So you are ready to go. It's the most trusted, time-tested app out there. They've been the expert in language learning for 30 years. Buy Rosetta Stone now and you never have to pay a renewal fee. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Impact of Influence listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 40% off. That's 40% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 40% off at rosettastone.com backslash today. We are with uh, Professor Bloom, John H. Bloom, the director of the Cornell Death Penalty Project. He teaches criminal procedure, evidence, and federal appellate practice, supervises the capital punishment and juvenile justice clinics for North Carolinians. Good to know he's a graduate of Chapel Hill, University of North Carolina, executive director of the South Carolina Death Penalty Resource Center which is a position he held until joining the Cornell Law School faculty, where he is right now co-author of many books, including A Modern Approach to Evidence and Death Penalty Stories. And he's argued eight cases in the Supreme Court of the U.S. Thank you so much for joining us, Professor Bloom. Sure. Happy to do it. We have been talking about the power of the Murdoch family over 85 years as solicitors. And with your work in the South Carolina Death Penalty Resource Center, you came across some cases that would be Randolph Murdoch II, who had put some people on death row, and apparently they shouldn't have been there. Tell me about the first case when you came in contact with what Randolph Murdoch II had done. Well, he was, uh, I think as has been reported by others various times, so he was a uh, uh, pretty much a bare-knuckle courtroom fighter uh, in that. And he generally didn't have, I don't think cared, my, this is my assessment of it, I mean, he never told me this, but I don't think he really cared if uh, he, 
a death sentence got reversed on appeal. The most important thing to him was to get it, was to sort of to win the battle in front of it. So many of the cases, in, in, or a number of the cases, uh, in which he sought and attained the death penalty were uh, reversed by the state Supreme Court, or uh, generally by the South Carolina Supreme Court. And it was almost always for the same reason, what we would refer to as prosecutorial misconduct in closing argument. Uh, you know, he would say things that he wasn't supposed to say. He would say things that he, that I think any prosecutor have known you can't say uh, and he actually said things he would make arguments uh, after he, he would make the same argument even though another a prior death sentence had been reversed because he made the exact same argument oh, again so uh, uh, and it generally had to do things like uh, like one of the famous ones he told the jury uh, in a Beaufort County case was if you don't give the guy the, the death penalty here I'm gonna I'll never seek it against anybody again if you don't Get this guy the death penalty. You might as well put up a billboard uh, at the county line that says, "Come on in, kill our children, rape our women, commit murder here." Nobody. Good cares. lord. The other one was, which resulted in reversal, was uh, commenting on the defendant's failure to testify. The defendant didn't take the stance. You know, doesn't have to testify. It's a clear rule that you don't have to testify. Uh, and nobody, they can't comment on. They can't tell the jury to hold it against you. Uh, right. And he was, he was famous for saying things like, "You know, you haven't seen this defendant. He's expressed no remorse. He didn't." He didn't tell you he was sorry for this, so you should give him the death penalty because he didn't have any remorse. So uh, those are just a couple of the ones that uh, that sort of stand out. But it was, uh, again, I it just you know I think he he was by all accounts uh, a heck of a courtroom uh, lawyer, but uh, he uh, was also you know I don't think really cared about whether it got reversed on appeal or not as long as he won the battle in front of. And when they get reversed on appeal, do you know, were they were they retried? And how many do you know of? You know, I will say that he didn't, that wasn't the most uh, aggressive person in seeking death. So I wouldn't, you know, say that. But uh, I think of the ones that I've called got reversed, some of them got sentenced to death again, and some of them were removed from death row. Generally, once a death, a conviction death sentence gets reversed, about two-thirds of the time, the person gets removed from death row. But not necessarily time. not necessarily let free. It's just the sentencing part. No, no, no. Usually they're re-sentenced to life in prison. And the things that he did were very, obviously, very egregious, right? It wouldn't take long to get those appealed when you just, if you have sentences like he was saying about, we're going to put a sign up here and people come rape our women and children, I would imagine it wasn't a battle to get some of those off death row, or was it? No, I mean, like, if, uh, in, in one of the cases, the case we're, we're talking about here and where he said, I'll never seek the death penalty again, in the, in the opinion reversing that, uh, the state Supreme Court said, Basically said, look, you know, he, he should have known better. We reversed the case twenty years ago where he said exactly the same thing. Wow! How did he never get uh, like? How did he never get censored or uh, taken off being a prosecutor? You know, I think people are very reluctant to file like you know sort of bar complaints or ethics complaints against powerful people. Uh, yeah. against prosecutors in general uh, and powerful people, especially powerful ones. And I don't think there was any question that that was an extremely powerful and influential family for many, many years. What decade are we talking about or what years was this happening? Uh, this is mostly uh, in the 60s and 70s and 80s. Is this one of the most uh, egregious or largest sample size of someone you've heard of putting people on death row? Uh, no, I wouldn't say that. I mean, I, like I said, I, he, he didn't seek it as much as some other people, uh, some of these other prosecutors that are uh, kind of famous around South Carolina, Donnie Myers in Lexington County and some of the others. But, uh, I, you know, I think that almost every case, I'd have to go back and look, but I'm pretty sure it's true, that I think every case in which he uh, 
got the death penalty was reversed at least once on appeal. Jeez. So how about the state of South Carolina? You worked here. How's the state match up uh, against other states in pushing the death penalty and, and, and reverses? Uh, it's uh, Well, South Carolina is, uh, because it's small, it doesn't have like the sheer numbers that right. a jurisdiction like Texas or Florida uh, or something like that would because of its size. But, but it's, all, it's, it's about, I think, sixth overall if, you th- if death sentences in relationship to the number of murders. Uh, you know, if you think about how many, you know, how many homicides, how many people get sentenced to death. And I think South Carolina is sixth nationally uh, if you do that. And then the reversal rate on appeal overall historically from 1976 to the present has been approximately 60%. Well, that's pretty high. What's the, what's the top state? Percentage-wise. Alabama. Oh, wow. I've lived in both of those states. So. <laughs> oh, watch your step. What is, overall speaking, I've heard this before, and tell me if this is, I made this up or if it's true, that the prosecutor's job is to get to the truth, and the defense attorney's job is to give his, make sure his client gets a fair trial. And sometimes that gets mixed up. Is that, do you think that's a true statement? Well, I mean, there's a, uh, you know, a famous quote from a Supreme Court decision called Berger versus United States, where they say the prosecutor's primary responsibility uh, is not to obtain a conviction, but to be a minister of justice. Uh, so therefore, at least in theory, they're supposed to be held to a higher standard than a defense lawyer who has an obligation to their client to obtain the best result possible. Uh, I think that's, uh, that's, in some places is often more aspirational than true. Yeah, okay. Uh, and, and so, but it, it is at least a statement of what the black letter law is. Uh, Professor uh, Bloom, thank you very much for your time. I appreciate sure. it. Keep up the good work. All right, thank you. Happy to do it. So after we spoke with Professor Bloom, I came across this legal brief where in 1979, there was a car chase between 24-year-old Michael Linder on a motorcycle. He was speeding and he had an expired license. So there was a car chase and the highway patrolman, Willie Peoples, was shot and killed. Initially, Michael Linder was found guilty and sentenced to death. It said that he had taken some bullets out of the highway patrolman people's gun and place them to to make it look like it was self-defense. When SLED concluded the spent rounds had been analyzed and they concluded the six shots had been fired from people's, the officer's gun, not Linder's gun. And that evidence was not available to Linder who was sentenced to death or his attorney. And that should have been obviously available because that proved the whole self-defense thing. Right. And the prosecutor was... Randolph Murdoch Jr. Which is Alec Murdoch's grandfather. Well, they didn't necessarily say he did anything wrong. They said that there were misleading witnesses. And the judge's instructions to the jury were not clear. Some of the witnesses did not tell the truth. Now, they did not say that Murdoch had anything to do with that. Just an interesting note. Uh, Before we wrap up, you have a birthday wish? Yes, so... One of my friends, her mother is a huge fan. She's been listening to our podcast all along, and her name is Marianne Long, and she is turning 90 this week, so we wanted wow. to give her a shout-out. Happy birthday! If you want to get a hold of us, comments, thoughts, etc., how do they get us? You can reach us on Murdoch Podcast Facebook page or MurdochPodcast.com. And we will chat soon. Hello, this is Dr. Grande, the host of True Crime Psychology and Personality. 
On my podcast, I explore and explain the pathology behind some of the most horrendous crimes and those who commit them. We discuss topics like narcissism, psychopathy, sociopathy, and antisocial personality disorder from a scientifically informed perspective. What is a narcissist? How do you spot a sociopath? What signs can you look for to protect yourself from these dangerous personalities? It's not just about the stories, but also the science and psychology behind them. So if you're interested in true crime or mental health, I'd encourage you to give my show a listen wherever you get podcasts. So when the scammer uses the hypnotic method of building rapport, then they create dysfunctional, delusional reality. That's how a scam begins, convincing the mark that it makes perfect sense to hand over their money to a con artist. The Scams and Cons podcast tells you how scams are run. You'll hear how people are convinced to buy fake art, buy machines that print money, or steal your house. I get a phone call from my wife, and she let me know that they had decided to move all our stuff out. I can no longer do anything about it except go through an eviction. And you'll hear it from the experts people who run the cons. So we go to your bank, you go in and get 6,000 cash, give us each 3,000, we give you this, uh-huh. you go home and what you find out is cut up newspaper. It's fun to know how the trick is done and that's what Scams and Cons is all about. Listen at scamsandcons.com or wherever fine podcasts are found.